The problem was that Olesser caused diarrhea, explosive <laughs> diarrhea. <laughs> so, and then, and then Proctor, it, yeah, the, the funny thing is like, like oh, it, diarrhea is not something you want to have associated with your food product. Sort of rebranded diarrhea because it has a bad, <laughs> it has a bad reputation. Um, so they rebranded it and sort of uh, the warning said uh, um, it may cause anal leakage. <laughs> well, that's, that improved. That's better, huh? That's better. Oh, I'd buy that if it was just anal leakage. You're listening to The Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice. Welcome to The Occupational Philosophers for 2023, the not-so-serious business podcast to spark a little bit more creativity, curiosity and imagination. Every week I am joined by my host, fellow host, fellow creative, 50% down the middle, John Rice. Hello, John, and Happy New Year. <laughs> Thank you, Simon. A lovely introduction. Happy New Year to you. Happy 2023. Can yeah, scarce believe exciting. it that we're here. Are you, uh, are you keeping well? Did you have a nice I'm keeping Christmas well, New Year break? As you know, just back from the UK, a little jet lagged and all that uh, type of thing. Brain is slowly springing into gear, which, John, which brings me to probably <laughs> what's caught my curious eye this week, only having been yes. a few days off the plane. Not that much, really. However, <laughs> tapping into a, a little bit more, <laughs> tapping into a little bit more of our Australianness, there was a massive cane toad found in Australia. I'm not sure if it made the news where you were, but it's huge, the size of like a, a rugby ball, and it weighed uh, three kilo or six pounds. So this is like a a toad. So, it's so like this. that caught my eye, John. Not that exciting, but I thought no. <laughs> <laughs> that's what caught my interest yeah yeah it would have caught you right that size but no yeah, we didn't have it in the you might be surprised we didn't have the news in the uk because we're not having a slow news week this week there's, there's enough going on <laughs> that we're not reporting on cane toads in australia um, going along the same line of uh, fauna as it were the thing that caught my eye is probably something that's quite old but i only got drawn to it just just recently it was about goldfish and I saw that uh, goldfish grow in relation to the size of their environment or goldfish bowl. And I went, oh, I didn't realize that. So, of course, that has you spin into all sorts of things around how we similarly might grow into the environment we allow to form around ourselves. And if we make our environment bigger and push ourselves out of comfort zones, we might grow bigger. Have you ever seen, have you ever heard that in a corporate setting, you know, you have like the dance floor, or I'm on the balcony, you're on the floor, or it might be, you know, the helicopter view or something uh-huh. on those lines. I've never heard this. Like you be a goldfish, grow to the environment and you create for yourself. Yeah. Or yeah. I will be your pond. <laughs> no, but, I mean, it's obviously not just me. the size of the fishbowl, but that is a big part of it. So it is, no, it is yeah. true. And as the story goes, it's a pretty good one. So I think that's a great one to share with people. Okay, now <laughs> here's the challenge. Get, get in a bigger bowl. There's the challenge, get in a bigger bowl. No, here's the challenge. You come back and I come back in a month's time and we've used this analogy with all seriousness in a workshop. There's the mm-hmm. challenge. Okay. There's a ch- All, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I shall report back. They'll probably hit me with a the fish. <laughs> now, 
We've spoken toes, we've spoken fish, but John, the next thing we need to speak is this is a guest episode, which are always our favourite and also our listeners as well. Who is the curious cat we have with us to kick off the glorious 2023? Well, Simon, as ever, naturally delighted. And I'm going to just announce up front that we are joined by the esteemed Dr. Samuel West, who is a licensed psychologist with a PhD in organizational psychology. He's explored the psychology of happiness, in particular happiness as it relates to work, the complex relationships between happiness and affluence. He's taught courses on positive psychology, creativity, organizational science. And in his PhD in organizational psychology, he looked at how workplace playfulness boosts innovation. You can see why he's here, can't you, Simon? But But there's more, but there's more. More recently, he's the founder and creator of the Museum of Failure, which is a collection of failed products and services from around the world, with every item providing quite a unique insight into the risky business of innovation. Again, a topic that we talk to. He's become a leading expert helping teams, organizations understanding the role of failure in terms of how it helps them with innovation and progress, helps them accept failure better, appreciate the benefits of psychological safety as well, which again is a key factor. He's a global keynote speaker. He seeks to educate and inspire with fascinating stories of the artifacts at the Museum of Failure. He has a roll call of clients like you wouldn't believe and press coverage in global publications from the New York Times, NBC News, Financial Times, The Guardian, The Washington Post and El Pay and more. Samuel, Dr. Samuel West, welcome. And may I just add, after that introduction highlighting all of your work, achievements, and talent, I feel by comparison that you ought to add me to your collection in the Museum of Failure. (laughs) Welcome. Thank you very much. (laughs) I get embarrassed with these kind of introductions, so because I none of that's fresh in my memory. (laughs) (laughs) That was only half of it. I didn't get it all in. (laughs) And what what you're I'm glad you didn't try. And what you'll find is John is a little bit of a stalker as well. He goes to oh, areas oh. that you wouldn't find out. So a few of our oh, guests he's have found got... the he's found yeah. the uh, the less the dark areas of, of, <laughs> of, of that professional profile. You wait till what he brings it... out uh, <laughs> brings out later. But look, what I'd love to know is what's caught your curious eye this week in your part of the world. I don't know why, but I I always find uh, something that's not happening here in my immediate area more interesting than what's happening right in front of me, which is not very, uh, it's not very good for survival skills and things like that. But um, I just read an article about, I was in the news yesterday about how Japan is now, like they've realized that the population is getting older because there's not enough kids and, and the young Japanese people are not having sex and not having children. And they've known this. I remember reading about this like 20, 20, 30 years ago. This is going to be a problem. And now Japan's like, oh, shit, it's a problem. Like, you realize it now. It's too late. And, and I was just like, wow, that's crazy, you know? Like that an entire country, an entire nation is like, oh, oh, wow, we have a problem now. Like, yeah, you saw this like 20, 30 years ago. And the dynamics of why young Japanese, why people in Japan aren't having kids. I was just like, damn, like this is... This is huge. And it's not just Japan. It's the rest of the industrialized world as well. But yeah, it boggles my mind. And it's interesting. That was just making me think, because uh, one of the topics I'm talking about at the minute is uh, a lot with a lot of organizations is is succession planning and, and building for the future. And you go, 
You should go into an organization and say, hey, what's your birth rate like? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, what's your birth rate? Like, what? What's going Turnover. No, 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 no. 15 years down the line, buddy. <laughs> you got some challenges. <laughs> we had a, uh, a, a treasurer for maybe 15 years, like one of the longest serving treasurers in a previous government. And he said, have one child for you and have one for the country, which was quite yeah. a famous uh, <laughs> line at the time, which, uh, which got bandied about. So, <laughs> and where are you in the world today, Samuel? We've obviously we've got listeners that join us from all over, uh, which is rather nice. I'm, but where are uh, you? Right now in Stockholm, Sweden, looking out the window, it's a uh, typical Stockholm January weather. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking about should I be depressed today or should I just be angry? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you, could, you could do both. <laughs> yeah, that's true. True. Why choose? Yeah. <laughs> It's so, January. You know, give us, me, give it bothers me that one of you is in Australia right now. It does bother me. I won't lie. And look, I <laughs> have, as I said, having just come back from a month in the UK, like the the stark the stark contrast from driving to the gym at about eight o'clock in the morning and it was about two degrees and raining, through to when we came home to a uh, hot, sunny thirty degrees. It could not be more. <laughs> It could not be more uh, bright and bold at this time of year. On the subject of cultural differences and and not just in the weather, do you have this thing that the UK gets very excited about, or not excited about, but dry January? After the Christmas break, everybody goes, oh, we're going to do dry January, and it's a thing. But I didn't wonder whether it was something in in Sweden and Australia, particularly Australia, because you're in the middle of the summer. It's jolly hard to do dry January in the summer, is it? I don't know. Samuel, is it, is it a Sweden thing as well? Uh, yeah, dry January is definitely a thing in Sweden. I think just about everybody I meet says, just yesterday, uh, a meeting in the evening, and he felt like he had to warn me that he was doing, so it's like, yeah, it'll be nice to meet. By the way, it's dry January for me, just so you know. And I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's like one of the things you have to advertise, like you're a vegan or you're doing dry January <laughs> or something. Sort of. But the Swedes are really good at sort of, taking things and making it seem like they're morally superior to everyone else. Like they're the only ones who've ever thought of dry January. You know? yeah. I, was, I was reminded when you said vegan, it's like, how do you know if someone's vegan? Don't worry, <laughs> give them five minutes and they'll tell you. Exactly. I, I refuse, <laughs> I cannot imagine dry January or dry anything being alcohol relatedly dry being a, a thing in Australia. So we have dry July which is a similar thing uh, in the middle of the year, which is a, you know, a bit more maybe charity-based. But as someone says, you on, uh, you on, I'm on Scotch and Dry in January. So that's about as uh, everyone just parties. It's our summer. There's no, there's no abstinence. And for those who are abstaining, good on you. But as a trend over here, you know, we don't. We're going to have a, a quick fire round. And we call this dinner party introductions. You've rocked up at a dinner party. We've all been invited by obviously a very cool friend because that's why we're always there. But, you know, so rather than the uh, – we're always looking for the hello, what do you do for a living? John and I thought we've come up with a, a not-too-bad list of dinner party questions. And you can use these at your own dinner parties as well and claim credit for them. We don't mind. Like, you can go, wow, <laughs> you're an interesting guy. So first – Hello, nice to meet you. Fancy being set to you. What's giving you joy at the moment? Um, oud. 
Oot. <laughs> well, see, this is, this, is a, this is the response. I, I know it's supposed to be super fire, but Oud is uh, giving me Jonah. It's a, I just discovered it. It's a very expensive oil that's used in top quality perfumes. Oh. It's an aromatic oil made from fungus infected trees in Malaysia. <laughs> wow. <laughs> It's so expensive, and it's so awesome that it makes me wish I was richer. Okay. And do you have a little bit you're putting in the oil burner at home? Yeah, or? smell right here. Oh, delicious. <laughs> okay. So. That's one of the most intriguing answers I think we've had. Usually people say something like, I don't know, beans on toast or a nice <laughs> bottle of wine or a book. We'll go, ood. I like that. Oh, uh, do you, you, have gotta, a, you do guys got to figure at some point in your life, it should be on your bucket list to smell real oud at some oud. point. It's oud. it's not something you're going to find at the corner shop, but if you ever get a chance, it's on the list. And do you have a hobby that you're losing yourself in at the moment, uh, Samuel? So it pisses me off that Sweden, that has such clean, good drinking water, imports mineral water from Italy and France. It's mind-boggling. Like, why should we be drinking water that's been driven here on trucks from Italy. Sweden has great water. The reason is because Sal Peregrino tastes better. It's, it's a good water. So I just discovered, I found a spreadsheet online. I discovered a way to make your own mineral water. So I could just choose any big brand mineral water. And then I have a box of minerals and I have this drug like cocaine scale and stuff and I can mix it's crazy I feel like a chemist I can mix these minerals together and then I add them to my uh, carbonating sort of soda stream thing and I can make water like any water any mineral water you you I can make anything out of water from my tap and it costs nothing so, so that's so what I do. That's what I'm doing all day. <laughs> so basically, you're, you're, like, you're like the Walter White of Stockholm. Yeah, exactly. Breaking, the little vials that have to look like that. <laughs> now, once I, once I went to a, a, a meeting with a, an important, you know, corporate client, and because I'm sloppy, I, I didn't check myself in the mirror before I went out. You know, I have my black T-shirt. And then once I got to the meeting, he looks at me and he goes, like, what, what's going on? Like, what? And I just looked down and, it, and I had, like, white powder everywhere. <laughs> like, this very fine white powder. <laughs> nothing. nothing. <laughs> it was good fun. <laughs> now, who or what inspires you now? I'm inspired by young people or, like, now I sound like an old guy, but um, young people who are questioning the whole assumption of work. Mm. I just read a bunch of articles last week about, and some, saw some interviews that, at least in Sweden and the United States, people are questioning, why do we attribute so much value to work? Why should we be working so much? And these things that I've taken and my generation and my parents have taken for granted, these young people are not, they're not buying this bullshit. Yeah, a lot in the news about, four-day weeks, which almost mm. doesn't feel mm. radical enough, but actually just, yeah. you know, they're questioning yeah. things way beyond just the sort of yeah. rejigging of working hours. I just, just, I mean, you, we were talking about like a four-day work week, etc., and then how maybe that not, might not be pushing it far enough. I, I just, <laughs> just last night, uh, was reading about how the, like it should actually, we should actually be aiming for a 15-hour work week. <laughs> 
that's what I do in a day. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. <laughs> but who says that I'm right and that they're wrong? I mean, it's a, I like playing with that idea. Simon, we, we might have to cut short the podcast. Samuel's not in for an hour and a half. He's going to do it best. <laughs> 45 minutes then. I mean, he's laid his yeah, stall I'm, out here. Yeah, well, I'm just thinking of podcasts. Why do they have to be so long? Let's just make them uh, three minutes, you know? <laughs> and Shit, thanks right. for joining us. <laughs> that was a great show. Yeah. <laughs> what big question are you wrestling with at the minute, Samuel? Uh, Japanese negative population growth. Oh, on a personal level, <laughs> I have to, as always, I need to get into better shape. Uh, okay. <laughs> Strongly linked to dry January, possibly, which is often the, uh, the, the post-Christmas little piece. And I've been having that same question with myself. So once you have to take off some la layers when you come back to Australia, I think, oh, my, oh my God. <laughs> Quick, Jim, <Jim>, go. <laughs> now, when John introduced you, there are literally, there's so much stuff. So how would you describe what you do if you have a short elevator pitch? And building on that, what are your intersections? If you sort of think it's a combination, maybe three or four things, what might there be? So elevator pitch first and then your intersections. If I just want to do it really quickly, quick and dirty, I just tell people I'm a psychologist and then that usually scares them off. Um, <laughs> and, and that's good. And it's flexible. Everyone has some kind of relationship to psych psychology or psychologists. It makes for interesting conversations. So that's, that's what I just, cause I, every time I try to explain what I do, people get bored. I, it's, <laughs> I, I didn't ask for your life story. Just shut up. <laughs> so, so that's it. And then like a longer version would be, I mean, I, the, the psychology part, I mean, I, I did a PhD in organizational psychology. So that's, so this clinical and organizational psych is important. I mean, it's a big part of everything that I do, but I'm a sucker for fun projects. I'm a yeah. sucker for, uh, and if people just knew that, they could get me to work for free forever. Because <laughs> I, I'm like, like, hey, we have this cool project you want to be part of. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I like to put myself into situations that I have no fucking idea what's going on. <laughs> Oh, but it sounds I've like been a trying to figure it out. <laughs> sounds like a great place to have, have an intersection. And look, just you, uh, John. I'm not sure if John mentioned it in the introduction. You're a TED speaker as well. Would you like to just maybe tell us about your experience being a TED speaker? Do I have to? I think. So. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I oh, this would be good. To, uh, <laughs> when, when, when uh, uh, oof. Uh, I'm sweating just thinking about it. When <laughs> so, so when Museum of Failure opened, that was my sort of big claim to sort of global media attention and sort of being at least for a few years there hot in the media. And I was asked to do TED talks all all around the world. So come and do a TED talk because you're you're on fire now. And I got a bit cocky about it. I was like, yeah, well, if I can, if there's so many TED talks I could do, then. I'm going to pick the one that's the most interesting of all these different places. And then I, I got a request from the, um, the Ivory Coast in Africa. And I was like, I've never been there. It's a weird place to do a TED Talk, but that sounds cool. I want to, I'll do it. I show up there and it's a big conference and the TED Talk gets scheduled at seven o'clock or somewhere in the evening there. And I'm already, and so are all the other speakers, and it's a mixed group of speakers. 
And I think I was the only international speaker or one of the few. Anyway, everything was so delayed that I was on stage, I think, at midnight and half, more than <laughs> half of the audience had left. <laughs> oh, gosh. So I'm on stage speaking to an empty auditorium of people who are all irritated. <laughs> and I'm trying to give an enthusiastic, fun speech. <laughs> and this is the video that people who hire me for talks see. And I can't control that. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They do, do an audience pan. Everyone's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's like two people, the ones who couldn't afford a hotel room. They're on the, still on their seats. <laughs> like sleeping like at the airport. <laughs> I need another TED talk to boost my image as a speaker. <laughs> TED, if you're listening. <laughs> So Samuel, you're probably most known as the curator of the Museum of Failure, which is a really delightful idea. I'm still jealous in some regards how you got that domain name because it's so classic and it celebrates failure as an essential part of innovation. Can you briefly tell us how that came into existence? I started it 2017 and the idea for Museum of Failure, I, I didn't actually have that idea I was so I was playing with I like the research on organizational sort of taking risk and learning from failure. I thought it was quite um interesting and I didn't think it got it wasn't my research. I was just I was just interested in those those questions because they were related to my own research and I was like I was looking for a new way, a new format, a new way to present the information. I didn't want to do a talk or write an article or I was just like I thought there would be some magical solution out there that I could have some fun and spread the word so sort of mission <laughs> about this and I, I couldn't figure anything out and i got inspired uh when i went to the museum of broken relationships <laughs> uh, you gotta you gotta check this out they're awesome it's in croatia uh in zagreb and i i was just there on holiday uh with my family and go then i get like blown away that this is just it's an awesome museum with a an abstract, quirky, you know, museum, but they made it a real museum, a physical walk-in, look at things, yeah. pay tick for tickets museum. And I just had this hallelujah moment, like if if they can do that, I can do a museum of failure. So that's the idea. So the research stuff was the, the beginning, and then the actual museum format came from there. And then I got funding from the Swedish Innovation sort of fund or, or authority, a government uh, money to start the museum because they thought it was a good idea as well. How, or I can they... that it was a good idea. <laughs> well, I was, I was, that was the thing I was interested in is how did the pitch go for that concept? Can you remember? <laughs> yeah, well, it was money. It was external funding for projects to engage people, to, to create interest in research on innovation. So it was very nerdy. It was nothing sexy about that. The, that sort of application round. But I mean, Museum of Failure was probably the most interesting thing they found in that whole year of that program. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I was pretty cocky about it when I, when I sent in the application that they would say, yeah. And they did. So look, out of your museum, and failure is a funny word, and we'll talk about uh, we'll talk about this because I love the role this, that, the, uh, that weaves through this. But are there any favorite failures in the museum and maybe the story behind them? 
Yeah, exactly. The my favorites are the ones that have a good story. So yeah. I have about a hundred and I think we're up to 170 now, 180. Right. So there's in museum speak, it's called artifacts, not yes. things. Yes. Right? So these things, um, <laughs> the ones that have a good story are, are my favorite. So for example, I mean, there's one the Amstrad emailer. I love that one. It's not, doesn't get any attention. Nobody cares about it, but I think it's fascinating where Sir Alan Sugar, this, Lord, Lord, Lord now, he's a Lord. Lord so, oh, sorry, Lord sorry. I, I was. I heard from someone I would get in trouble for that, not calling him Lord. Oh, really? Yeah, we're, we're <laughs> sending around security now. You'll hear a knock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. On the door. <laughs> um, yeah, so he, this is at a time, so he created this, this device. It looks like a, a fax, like a big bulky thing with a little screen on it and a small keyboard. And it's called emailer. And it sort of gave all of Britain access to email. The thing was, at the same time, people, internet exists with people were buying computers that they could do all kinds of things on. The email was very limited to just, just email and not particularly good at that. Uh, and you had to pay per minute for it. And it was all kinds of crazy things around that they made it a, a stupid product. But uh, Lord Alan Sugar... Uh, uh, Security, th- Everybody off, looks off. up to... Like, <laughs> <laughs> he, for for 11 years, he kept that product alive when it should have never have existed. And some claim that it mm-hmm. killed, sort of destroyed the, the, the company. And I, I love this. I'm not even giving this story justice here, but it's an example of how failure is, you know, it doesn't have to be the technology. It doesn't, it can be like, in this case, we look up to this bold visionary inventor billionaire. Elon Musk, I'm looking at you, thinking of you now, um, <laughs> where like, oh, they can do no wrong. There's this genius. Well, yes, they're, they're humans. They fuck up all the time, you know. But the difference is, in, in this case with the Amsterdam emailer, is that, you know, the pride saying, like, I'm not listening. I'm a maverick. I'm, go- I'm going on my ta- trailblazing through the unknown, like, and not listening to anyone or customers or anything. And then you get the emailer. <laughs> is that, i don't know where yeah. i was going with that but it's a fact I, I no one believes me that it's a fascinating story it is a fascinating yeah, well, story and you mentioned obviously lord alan sugar uh, amstrad yeah. and of course one of the other ones i noted samuel was the obviously the c5 that was one of those other big technological breakthroughs that that didn't work and then you kind of go, was that a timing thing? Because he, he had something, and there was, <laughs> I felt I felt sorry for him whenever he was no, the C5 in castigated case, in the press. The, listeners are not familiar with the Sinclair C5. Is was it was Sinclair, another big uh, innovator, yeah. sort of maverick of, of the UK. He uh, created an electric vehicle. It was very strange and futuristic and plastic and and everything. It was very un impractical and dangerous but Apart i mean the thing that, is he was 40 years ahead of his time now you see electric yeah. kick bikes and bikes everywhere and no one thinks anything of it but he was 40 years that's a long time ahead of his time and yeah sure the the product is a piece of shit but but <laughs> the idea the ideas there and somebody had to be first and it was it was just completely wrong timing no one cared about the environment or the price of petrol so ah. at the time 
There's some that are easier to explain. I mean, one that I love to talk about is the Olestra from 1996. <laughs> so Procter and Gamble found a invented a low calorie fat. So all the junk food. Um, what do you say in uh, in Australia? Do you say crisps or do you say chips? No, we say for- chips. We say chips. Chips. And you have, chips just for, for definition, you have hot chips, which are the hot potato chips you get out of the oven. Then you just have cold chips, which are the, <laughs> you just say the crisps. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're sloppy. You just call everything chips. Yeah. yeah. Anything, well, all, any fatty all the potato is a- <laughs> um, if, if it's a potato product, we just go chips, mashed potato, <laughs> mashed chips. <laughs> anything potato anything potato i've seen you put some baked chips. potato is a baked chip, baked yeah, chip. Big chip. chips on the shepherd's pie nice so uh yeah <laughs> with a side so, of chips thank you thank you thank you for that um lesson in australian uh, oh, terminology welcome. so the so wh- what was I talking about? About uh, <laughs> oh, the, Olestra, the, low fat, the low fat. Yeah, yeah. Olestra. Yeah. So with Olestra, uh, this calorie-free fat substitute, uh, you can make uh, junk food with low, ca- no, zero, very low or zero calories. So this was a hallo- this was a, like a breakthrough uh, innovation in food science, and and expectations were enormous that this would change everything because. Now you can finally eat as much junk food as you want to without getting fat. The problem was that Olester caused diarrhea, explosive <laughs> diarrhea. <laughs> so, and then, and then Proctor, it, yeah, the, the funny thing is like, like oh, it, diarrhea is not something you want to have associated with your food product. Sort of rebranded diarrhea because it has a bad it has a bad reputation. Um, so they rebranded it and sort of uh, the warning said uh, um, it may cause anal leakage. <laughs> well, that's, that improved. That's better, huh? that's better. Oh, I'd buy that if it was just anal leakage. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys are both experienced, uh, uh, what do you call it, speakers and workshop dudes, right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you can imagine the joy I get out of at at posh up uh, you know uh, corporate events standing on the stage and talking about anal leakage there is no joy greater than that <laughs> now john your next challenge oh, is you need to use the story uh in the next couple of weeks as well <laughs> so the goldfish and the goldfish analogy yeah. And anal leakage. I've got to get yes, into my yes. next uh, workshop. No talk. need. No okay. need to. You don't have to include both of them in the same sentence. Oh, thank that goodness, Samuel. Thank you. That's very kind yeah. of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Give that marketing man. Give him a promotion. Whoever sort of decided on that as a, a way to sort of get through that problem. Anyway, <laughs> um, I also caught sight of. Um, one of your quotes that was a was a riff on Leo Tolstoy's thing about family happiness. You know, all families are alike, but each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And you turned that into that thing around innovation, saying all successful innovations are alike. Each failure fails in its own way. And I thought that was really nice and just wondered if you could elaborate on that a little. 
I love that. I love stealing quotes and then getting them wrong. Um, the, <laughs> the real gift. So, <laughs> so, so I often get asked, Hey, you have the museum of failure. Have you, do you have any sort of lists of like how to avoid failure or are there any themes at the museum that, that we can learn from how we can avoid um, innovation failure? And that's what my clients want, but I can't deliver that because there is there there are some themes absolutely, and there there's a lot to learn. But there's so many ways a new product or service or a new approach can fail that it's very difficult to sort of categorize them and make some sense out of it. There there are themes, but they're just not interesting enough to actually. I don't feel confident enough to say this is how you avoid failure because then somebody will find a new way to fail. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I really like that quote because it's. I think it's true. And I'm guessing, as you describe the, you might see themes. So you might see something around timing or execution or design flaws. But of course, they could come together in absolute multitude of permutations. And so that's why is that why effectively you go look. Yeah. I know these are all the things, but the way you mix them could be different every single time. And then there's um, chance and just you know probability where things happen that are way out of your control. I mean, look at all the all the failures that happened when the iPhone was released and replaced a lot of different sort of made many business ideas obsolete just by one sort of huge tech tech breakthrough. And I mean, we'll probably see similar things now with um, the continued development of AI, at least the creative part of that. Those things you can't control. I mean, you can be aware of it, but you still can't control. You can't predict that that's going to happen. So those are factors that are out of the control of the, the companies. But then there's, you know, there's internal politics. There's, uh, we had a sex doll in the museum that was um, <laughs> donated by a Chinese company. These are, so I know you guys are familiar with sex dolls, um, especially the Oz. Sorry, I'm glad, glad it was donated by, by a company and not a previous owner well uh, uh, it, uh, it, it's more complicated than that um so the, the sex <laughs> the sex doll right when i opened the museum there in 2017 the the sex doll was donated by a company so you guys you guys are smart guys so you're familiar with this shared economy so uber airbnb and the likes where you don't actually own what you just kind of rent what you need um, so this company uh, rented out sex dolls. Um, <laughs> so they're quite expensive. They're like two, three thousand euros each, and that's that's quite expensive. So how smart wouldn't it be if you could just rent one for like fifty euros for twenty four hours? So they had an app, so you could just if you wanted, you could have Miss Asia, Miss Africa, uh, Miss uh, Russia. And for America, they didn't have Amer Miss America, but uh, they had Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman. <laughs> yeah. So on this app, you would just choose the one you wanted and then pay the, the 50 bucks or whatever. And then somebody would deliver her on a, on a moped scooter. And they said that in and they pick her up a day later and they said that they promised that they clean her thoroughly between uses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> When they deliver them, so they're like Deliveroo, Just Eat drivers or whatever, riding a motorbike, 
what with the the doll riding pillion on the back yeah because the doll i i've lifted that it's really heavy it's a it's a proper heavy doll um so you do you need a yeah you need probably a strong guy to carry her yeah. into the person just thinking what the neighbors might say hey did you see hank yeah. wonder woman turned up the other day yeah. <laughs> he knows yeah. wonder woman <laughs> He knows her very well. <laughs> now they're cleaning her. <laughs> Just out of interest. What the hell what did Hank the, do? What, what was the moment when they realized this isn't working? Like, what yeah, so, the, yeah, what well, was the, the point yeah, of failure? The was, yeah, the reason I was telling you this story was because they actually were doing quite well. But the National Congress of China had a meeting that same summer and they were trying to clean up Beijing and this company was caught in that cleanup and it's like they closed them down. So it was out of their control. They had a brilliant idea at the time, and, but they, without any way of knowing it would be illegal, were, were put out of business. So they, they sent me a doll. I, th I hope she's unused. <laughs> <laughs> So look, that, that leads us into our next question, I think, because our, our show is always around, uh, we always have these common themes of uh, being more creative, being more curious, being more imaginative. So being able to reimagine, open our eyes and, you know, and make stuff as well. And I always say that they're, they're the absolute bedrocks of innovation. But as your museum shows, you know, things don't work out as planned as we always think. So what are some other innovation ingredients looking at what didn't work out you need to, to add to that, to those human yeah, those human skills. What else might you add on that top of that pile? What needs to be added to to be successful well, at innovation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think on top of what you've listed, one thing that at least I see at the museum. So I I don't see the successful ones at once every day. <laughs> yeah. Um, so no one likes the, that museum. Yeah, successful <laughs> innovations. <laughs> boring. This is boring. Come on. So it's uh, something that that I think a lot of the items at the museum could have been avoided if leadership and the you know the driving force behind these innovations would actually have listened so i i would say listening and that means listening to colleagues other teams within the organization listening to you know leadership listens to uh people on the on the on the floor and also listening to customers i mean i or even listening you know, just being humble and listening, listening in general. I mean, I, I just wrote a piece on uh, Facebook's ginormous fuck-ups with their uh, crypto digital currency, and how much it's cost them. And it would have worked out brilliantly if they just would have been a little more, less hubris, a uh, little more, if they had been just a little humble and listened to and worked with regulators and partners, but instead they're like, we're Facebook, fuck you. And it turned out to be a complete flop. I mean, that's not the best example of listening, but I, I just, I, I see that, that if these companies, for the most part, would be better at listening to both stakeholders and, and employees, a lot of this could have been avoided. It's, um, that chimes completely with not just some of the origins of this podcast, really, I think, so because oh. it was, for me, it was, it was that lack of curiosity and lack of humility as you say, that would 
often be getting organizations or teams in trouble or teams not moving forward to do what they needed to do. But yeah, humility and curiosity, I think, uh, uh, need to be reinstated as firm leadership attributes. Absolutely. Uh, that, you know, really get talked about, really get looked at and get <clears throat> feedback on as to whether people are sort of in, imbuing that or embodying it. But uh, Imagine yeah. if um, humility was like, or something like uh, I'm not sure what leadership KPIs are because they're normally on I guess you know driving things through and sales and different things but imagine if humility was one of uh, your leadership KPIs and you had to think yeah am I being humble today I mean you're we're, they're seeing more that um, with uh, psychological safety that companies are more interested in putting that up as some as a goal and to create a psychological safe working environment people need to be willing to be vulnerable vulnerability and humility are not the same thing but they're sort of they kind of overlap a little bit so that's at least something that's positive that that's that's something that's not super rare anymore to say like for at least for leadership mm. to say like being able to display vulnerability is a, a strength but yeah, humility should definitely be back up on the list of things that leaders should do if they want to avoid failure. <laughs> now, just on that note, and we're sort of going to jump around a little bit, avoid failure. Yeah, I work in the space of uh, innovation and you know designing things, whether they're um, you know solutions to a human problem or <clears throat> around a product as well. I think the, the, that word failure. Uh, outside the humility, <laughs> the curiosity, that's like there's probably the people's view of what failure is, is the biggest drag on the innovation process, which is obviously uh, the, the intention behind, or I would think uh, part of the intention behind the Museum of Failure. How do we need to reimagine failure? What's what's a better way to look at it? Is it in the, actually, I'm just going to stop it there. I asked, my questions are too long. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> What was your question? <laughs> yeah. uh, the, he does, I, I, he I mean, does the, this, Samuel. This is this is oh, a running does. thing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you should maybe have a hand signal for that. The, yeah. I mean, I think we need to reevaluate failure, at least in the context of progress and definitely innovation as part of that, where failure isn't it's not an unnecessary detour and costly, embarrassing detour. It's part of the journey there. And there's a lot of evidence, both from research and anecdotal evidence, that does suggest that we, if we don't have a fairly high failure rate, you're not actually doing anything particularly interesting or innovative. So, and I think a lot of companies don't get this, despite all the innovation consultants in the world and all the great processes and books and stuff. There's still this thing of, we want to be innovative, but we don't want to fail at all, ever. And that's just that's that's just not possible. Um, so I think the reevaluation of failure in that way is that we need to see it as part of success and part of of the process. I just discovered this quote. I don't want to share it because it's so good. Uh, I want to keep it to myself. Um, I don't, well, if, I don't, if you I don't share like it here. Idea. I don't gone. like the idea of other uh, smart ass consultants using what I think is brilliant. But um, I'll share with you guys, yeah, if you promise. <laughs> the quote is, I think it's brilliant. It sums it up. And I don't know who to credit for this, but it's not a failure if you call it an experiment. I think that's what companies, uh, organizations need to understand 
that if you design an initiative, a project, and you're uncertain about it, yeah, it, it'll probably fail. But design it as an experiment that you can learn from, and then don't be so caught up in it. What if it's successful or not? As long as you can glean some kind of learning from it. I was just thinking. You may have heard recently uh, in the UK we had um, the first spaceport to launch satellites off. You know, it was going to be set on a seven three seven or whatever. We take off and detach, and off it would go into orbit. And the first launch, it, it didn't work. And it was just really striking. I remember seeing the headline the next day saying, UK space mission fails. And I just, as you said, I thought it could have said, UK's first experiment look, takes off. And you go, exactly. There's a certain schadenfreude about it mm -hmm. all. You know, people, do you know what I mean? That people go, oh, it's failed. Oh, they like yeah. to see that as newsworthy, oh. isn't it? Ah, yeah. okay. They're not as I good mean, as even within, <laughs> even within a corporate context, it's the same yeah. way. You, you, oh, so-and-so team, they, they wasted $3 million on this project and it didn't, and they failed. Like, no, I'm, maybe they did fail, but more, most likely, more likely than not, they tested something that didn't work out and their next iteration will be even better. So I, I do like this whole experimental approach to innovation, for sure. Yeah, I like to always say to um, audiences I work with, get rid of that fail fast, because you always mm. feel like you're running into a wall just repeatedly. Yeah. You go, don't worry, uh, yeah. don't worry. Uh, and uh, hashtag experiment quickly. And then we start yeah. to think yeah, that same better. mindset. Yeah, now you can, you can use that if you want. If oh, you think, thank, oh. You. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, found, I saw one from uh, the Fuck Up Night, one of the Fuck Up Night, founders of Fuck Up Nights which is sort of a, I guess it's a TED talk format for talking about failure. And she said that we don't, we shouldn't be so uh, focused on failing fast. We should be more focused on failing mindfully. So fail, but be aware of what's going on and learn from it. And I love that. Don't fail fast. That's stupid. Uh, fail mindfully and learn from yeah, it. I love that one. You mentioned about the night of fuck-ups. And of course, one of the things that caught my eye in wanting to speak with you, Sam, was the collaboration you had with Neil Malarkey, who again has been with us on the on the podcast, and you had a a night of failure or something along those lines with a corporate client. Is that right? How did that? Yeah, go? that was a that was a fun. That was an unusually fun, semi quasi corporate event <laughs> where it was a whole day. It was with the Disruptors Network. And the whole focus was on failure. So I was thrilled to be part of that. It was a good, it, they'd got a, a nice group of speakers and mixed it up with, you know, not just people talking heads, but having, you know, discussions and crazy, because Neil was there, there were some crazy sort of interactive games that we, we put on panties. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't describe it. He had these giant <laughs> panties, like giant ones. And you, the person sitting next to you, you, you had to put like, you put one leg of the panties. What do you call them in England? Knickers? No. Uh, um, Knickers. Yeah. <laughs> I put one leg of the, of the panties on and then my neighbor there would put the other leg on. We'd, we'd have, we'd both be wearing the same um, underwear. Uh, and then in those underwears, everybody there sung uh, ABBA songs. Right <laughs> <It was laughs> now, honestly, if somebody, if, if this is like you know two in the afternoon, 
if somebody would have seen us, they would have thought either that this is some kind of retreat for the loony bin or that these people are experimenting with psychedelics. <laughs> Either way, good party. Hey, now, very good. This is, this is great. Uh, this builds for what I've been wanting to ask you all along. How do you fit in everything that you do? Because you know, you've got the Museum of Failure, the Disgusting Food Museum. You've got your Rescued Fruit Enterprise, which was a startup. You've got the Boring Experience, the Wake Up Dr. West uh, film. You've got Fuck the Planet, your climate activism and artworks, I will call them. You've got the Museum of Activism and the Wine Deck Wine Aerator, which is possibly, as an, I'm an artist and a sculptor. I looked at that and I thought, oh, all right. I said, I said to my wife last night, we're getting this. <laughs> so, look, the, your production and output and your creative output is massive. So, how do you fit it in? And that first question, and then I get excited here. And then how do you recharge to keep that creative process bubbling along? I can't I wish I could I wish I had a smart answer for you, but I don't. I um I had a problem about ten years ago, fifteen years ago. I everyone was telling me that you have to separate your work life from your private life and you know you have to you be very clear, you have to leave work behind and then have a private life, your own personal life. And I never, I was always unsuccessful at doing that. So I don't know. I, I, I've learned to embrace that chaos of, of everything sort of being mixed and I, I've stopped trying to organize it. So that means that my, yeah, I, I don't, I don't really see any difference between what I do for fun and what I do for work because Sometimes the stuff I do for fun is profitable, usually not. And sometimes the things, most of the times the things I do for work are fun and also not profitable. So it's a nice, I don't have to see that. I don't, I'm not no longer concerned with that distinction. And it's made it much easier to just do things that are inherently fun and interesting. Okay, time for a thought experiment. And thought experiments are a way to sort of stretch our mind, stretch our imagination, as you know, great philosophers have been doing throughout time. So, encourage us to think differently. So, every week we like to run some little thought experiments. But I thought, what a great thing to tap into with your understanding of, uh, of things that maybe haven't worked out so well. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you something from the real life, the world of real life, and so a product that didn't work out as well as it could have. And I'm interested in what was the maybe the missing ingredient or if you were to redesign this, what would you add to it uh, next time? All right, number one is Clippy. Remember, in the late 90s and early 2000s, we'd use your uh, Microsoft Office in the bottom of the screen with the purpose of assisting you. There was a little, you know, little Clippy. Okay. However... As people found, it asked stupid questions and told you nothing other than annoy you. Now, Clippy has been released by uh, Microsoft into the great afterworld. If Clippy was to make a comeback, what could Clippy be or do or what was missing in that piece? Well, Clippy's main problem was that Clippy was so fucking annoying. <laughs> so the first thing you would do is deactivate Clippy. Um, and he was not cute. He was not funny. There was no endearing features that Clippy could manage to 
to convey. So uh, stop trying to make intrusive, stop, stop making help intrusive. I think we're going to see, we're going to see that with a lot of the, the coming AI applications. If not, I mean, it already exists, but I mean, we're going to start seeing much more of like, oh, we're going to use AI to help you. And like, I don't want your help. I don't want an AI bot to help me now. You have to kind of click it away and get rid of it. I think that's going to, that's my prediction of the future. We're going to see more clippies. Okay, so Clippy's making a comeback, but in a, a more modern form. So, <laughs> but equally annoying. Well, it's a, okay. is it a chatbot? Isn't it? Isn't that what chatbots are? Pop up. Can I help? Yeah. Who 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 likes chatbots? And I'd like to reschedule my whatever. And then it takes you much. Oh, oh, it's so annoying. I just rent mine for the hour. Chatbots. Oh no, that's something different. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to go for a uh, another one here. This is the anti-eating mask. Now, true invention. For people on a strict diet and relatively very less willpower, this mask covers your mouth and doesn't allow you to eat. It, it wears with strips going all over your head and all the way to the back of your head that makes you look like something from um, Silence of the Lambs <laughs> or something from The Dark Knight. How could you... <laughs> <laughs> what does this need? What, what what's missing? Help us out, Samuel. <laughs> well, I, I I'm not a designer, but this this mask is. Uh, you're asking for my expert advice here. Yeah, just um, yeah. What what's your vibe? <laughs> so uh, my initial thought was so this the function of this mask is that you don't eat, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just thinking the face is not ideal for this because we have a lot of holes in our face. We have the mouth and the nose and the eyes, and I have glasses so that they fog up when I wear a mask and we have ears. It's a very sensitive area and there's many holes. As an alternative, you could plug just one hole on the other side of the body and also make it impossible to eat. <laughs> there's a bit of a theme coming through here. <laughs> <laughs> and this was a patent in 1982 in America. Put up for patenting. So, true invention. Wow. Yeah. Could you send <laughs> now, me that? I, I had no idea that this existed. You have to send yeah. me this. Yeah, uh, yeah I'll send you the link. John, do you want to do our last one? This last one here, Samuel. Smellovision. Smellovision. It was a machine that would release odor of what you were seeing in a movie because people like to smell movies. Well, in 1960, someone called Hans Laub applied this technique, and uh, the movie which was made use of this was uh, called Scent of Mystery. Any thoughts as to smell-o-vision and uh, maybe why that didn't quite take off as maybe Hans had expected or anticipated? Wow. Well, I hate to be uh, so-called uh, the German word besserwisser, Someone who always knows better than you, but I have to. I have to. I have to let. You, I have to inform you that at the Consumer Electronics Show a few weeks ago in Las Vegas, there is a new version of the Smellovision. Oh my god! Uh, yeah, <laughs> so it, news. it allowed. Breaking news. Yeah, it is. Uh, it apparently it had, if I remember recall correctly, it, it had a fifty different scents, and the article I read was uh, that. 
you're surfing something or you're watching a movie and it sort of detects it probably with some fancy AI like everything else. And then it just sort of pumps that citrus smell into your life. <laughs> what I'm curious about is like, how do you, is there a stop button? So like sometimes you consume media that's not, you don't imagine that it smells very good. Um, and you kind of, can, is there an emergency stop button on yeah. that device so that I, I don't want to smell this? I just, yeah. yeah. Well, Visual I, is fine. I, I was just thinking of the Shawshank Redemption again. <laughs> when he when he's gets to the end oh and he escapes, God. turn it off, turn it off. The whole thing about scent. I mean, the we live in a scent deprived world because everything, all our information is is via our eyes. I mean, everything, with few exceptions, is visual, and our the smell. I mean, it goes the smells go straight into your brain they're not processed that much it goes straight into your reptile brain and i'm surprised there isn't aren't more sort of applications and businesses focused on getting us to change our behavior good or bad uh with the help of smells an interesting angle there we go an underutilized sense there the olfactory sense there we go so smell of vision gets a thumbs up <laughs> yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> as long as it has an emergency off button. Smell it's too early, really, too early. Timing emergency cut off. Perfect. Samuel, we're going to come to the bit now where we try to do the, bit, the, the duty of care by the fact that we're a not-so-serious business podcast and try to give something of value to people out there working in organizations, be them <clears throat> individuals or teams or leaders. So just going to kick off with individuals. So I might be an individual contributor within an organization, or I might be a solopreneur, or I'm just thinking about how to get comfortable with failure myself. So pushing myself out of my comfort zone, any tips to get someone started? If I'm there individually sat there listening to this, what's a good starting point for me to embrace failure more readily? I think the probably the, the quickest way is to realize that people are very forgiving of failure. If you're honest about it and you're transparent, people are forgiving. This idea that you'll be immediately fired and you know sent to a, a, a prison camp in Siberia is, is wrong. If you're doing it for in the name of progress, you're doing it and you've done your homework, you're not being stupid about it and you still fail in that project, people are very forgiving. It's when you try to hide it and try to cover it with corporate bullshit, that's when you get punished for it. <laughs> Now I'm thinking in a team situation, uh, learning from you know the failures of others, and I know that you, in your work you recommend that within teams. But what are the conditions for that? Because it's easy to talk about this. There's so much attached to the notion of failure. What type of conditions do we need? Is it you know, is it that psychological safety? And what is that in a team? And how does that rely load into failure in the innovation? I mean, psychological safety is probably one of the hottest concepts right now within organizational psychology where it's a it's a fairly simple concept where it's a feeling of safety within a team that you won't be punished that you won't be penalized for you know asking the, that stupid question or being vulnerable or admitting failure these sort of taking these interpersonal risks in a team setting that you won't be punished for it and I think that's, I mean, I can't think of anything uh, better to strive for if you want a, a team that 
is high performing and very innovative and willing to take those risks that are necessary to push the envelope forward. Are there some ways teams can create that, Samuel, from your perspective? I mean, I know I've seen some of the work that Amy Edmondson sort of brings forward, but your thoughts? Yeah, I I mean, I agree totally. I agree with a Harvard super professor sounds stupid, but um, I mean, I I mean, the the whole thing of role modeling behavior is is central here. So no one, no one on the team is going to dare or have the courage to be vulnerable if that behavior hasn't been role modeled by the team leader project manager, whoever is in charge there. So I think that's the most important thing. Everything else sort of falls into place after that. Um, I'm going to change slight tack here, but I wanted to pick up on one of the other key studies that you've um, you've been looking at and a topic that you've been working with, which is play. And we talked about it some time ago, but we want to bring it more into the forefront because it seems to be really important to tie in with curiosity, creativity, and imagination. Uh, you were looking at how play benefits in creativity in in organizational context the studies kind of support that that creativity was enhanced by organizational play and you note that organizations who want to sort of grab hold of this or sort of utilize this effectively then again need to create that climate of playfulness and i wonder how they might do that is that something that again that is similar to what you were saying a moment ago about teams but what could leaders do what can organizations do yeah i think i think when it comes to play i mean it play also requires psychological safety and it's sort of a paradox there that play uh having a playful climate requires that safety that when you if you do something wrong slightly wrong uh, that you won't be punished for it. otherwise you won't dare to lean into play but play also or playful environment also builds psychological safety. So it's kind of like, yeah, they both sort of work together, which is what one of the reasons I think it's so fascinating. But I think for a playful work environment, there's no easy way to do that. There's a lot of ways not to do that. And one is to sort of force people to have fun and have a bunch of good suggestions on how they might have fun. So everyone brings their own version of playfulness for someone it might be i don't know sending weird strangely worded emails might be somebody's version of of play whereas i like to shoot people with nerf guns so there's there's different (laughs) ways to do that and and i think having an environment where people feel safe to experiment with new behaviors and have fun at the same time creates that environment where we we can test you know if things work, and maybe if I shoot Simon with a Nerf gun, he gets angry, then I know that, okay, maybe I shouldn't do that in the future. Now, look, no, no leader, when this leads into this, this piece around leadership, no leader wants more risk on their watch, okay? So they want to de-risk, okay? But also with everything you're speaking about is, you know, innovation doesn't come without risk. So how, what does a leader need to do if you want to model that that, that risk is okay? What might they consider? I mean, I think sort of, I don't know if this is specific, it's more of a general thought that you can't really have any great progress if you don't take risk. So risk is inherent to progress and it's definitely inherent to, uh, you know, figuring out how to navigate the uncertainty and changing environments. Without that experimentation and exploration, I can't see how any organization or or even a team can be successful in today's environment. You have to keep experimenting and testing 
and inherent to that is that you will fail at the same time. And that the risk you can, I mean, at the end of the day, I think a lot of leaders would be better off of focusing on failure recovery rather than risk management or risk avoidance. So, I mean, you mm -hmm. see that with, if someone is very, very careful in their decision-making and avoids risk at all costs, they also have, are absolutely doing absolutely nothing because that's the, the least risky behavior just to stay put. But mm -hmm. if they would rather say, Hey, um, if we do take some risk and we do push, push our boundaries, how will we recover? I mean, get used to, you know, fucking up every now and then and recovering from it. It's not the end of the world. And then you would be less afraid of that risk. And I want to stress test some of my thinking here. I always say you can de-risk this whole thing by doing some micro experiments to on a small level with a, a small amount of team. You know, you don't even need resources for a prototype. Like you need cardboard and a, you know, and some textures. So does that ring? Am I am I on the right path Absolutely. here? When I Absolutely. That? I mean, I think. I mean, the prototyping. So from design thinking, sort of prototy early prototyping is great. It's a great way to test assumptions. But sometimes, sometimes I think that school of thought gets overly focused on the actual prototype. Uh, like, sure, I mean, you can build stuff out of a paper and glue, but or whatever you're making them out of. But I think a lot of the resources are are on that rather than the sort of mental approach, because a lot of things you can't build an easy prototype. So you can still test assumptions with that sort of approach or philosophy without actually having a massive prototype. You can test it easier, you know, sometimes without a prototype. Yeah. But sure. I mean, it's definitely the right, it, I, I love that. I love that sort of whole mindset of, you know, how can, so we have an idea. Okay, cool. Do we want to spend 100,000 euros trying to make it work? Or should we spend a thousand euros and see if it, you know, test if it sticks? Doesn't make sense uh, when your risk of failure is quite high anyway. Okay, now just to wrap out uh, our wonderful uh, chat with you, we're going to go through a quick rapid fire round. And the fact I said a quick rapid fire, that's probably too many adjectives. So, <laughs> what's one thing you couldn't do without in your life at the moment? Yeast. Pardon? Sorry, was that geese? Yeast. Baking yeast? Baking <laughs> yeast. Bread yeast? Ah, oh, okay. You want to retake that? <laughs> no, I think that's quite good. <laughs> And that's good. Good. The fact that Simon said geese, <laughs> I was really, I was, I was leaning in for the story there. I was going, you're going to have to tell me more about that, Samuel. No, <laughs> it's bread. Geese. I like bread. I, you need yeast to make bread. <laughs> Here cool. we go. Let's see if you can get geese as the answer to this next question. What should everyone try at least once? <laughs> yeast. <laughs> geese. Geese. <laughs> That did not sound good. <laughs> now, Sorry. we are building the yes, occupational yes, philosophy. No, uh, <laughs> oh, wow. Go, go. Okay, no. Uh, everyone, go. Should, <laughs> everyone should at least try at least once. A go, a traveling to Albania. All right, tell me. Come on, no, tell I, more. I, that we just can't, traveling that to a place that's yeah. very uh, similar but still so different and feeling uncomfortable um, with it. 
And Albania is a great place, but as a place where you, you travel someplace that's not for your enjoyment or for your relaxation, but travel someplace that's just to, to shake up your thoughts and your assumptions of what's important in, in, in life and everything, just like to shake things up. So no luxury hotel, right. just go someplace where, I mean, Albania is a good place, uh, where you're just like, oh, wow, oh, this is also a way of doing it. Now, we are building the Occupational Philosophers Manigesto. What, and you see what we did there, I like that. So what one thing of all your learning do you think should be included? Well, I mean, if, I, if I'm representing Museum of Failure, then, I mean, we, we, we should be less afraid of, of failure because it's just like any other anxiety or worry. It's usually worse in your imagination than it is in reality. Is there a book we should be reading? I was hoping you would give me some ideas. I just read some short stories by Murakami. I thought they were uh, wonderfully refreshing, crazy stories about dancing elephants and, and stuff. And yeah, Murakami short stories. I can't remember the actual name of the book. Imagine you're in the later stages of your life. You've, uh, you've had a good life and you're being taken to your retirement home, let's say that. Uh, you're introduced, you're, you're walked into the room. How would you like to be introduced? Here's, Here's Sam. He's the one that lives on the entire top floor. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. A penthouse in a care home. You've got to go out with a bang. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Here's Sam. Samuel, Here's uh, Sam. He's the one that steals all the morphine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Walter White on the top floor. That's putting it in his um, smellometer. So what were we doing before with the white powder on you? Or, yeah. <laughs> Samuel, what are you up to next? I Museum of Failure is opening in New York in a month and a half. So that's taking a lot of time. And it's super exciting, big city. And I'm writing a book about online dating profiles and how to interpret signals. And I'm writing with a friend who's um, been dating a long time and uh, how to interpret signals uh, in profiles. Like, what does it mean with a, a man standing in front of his car? What does it mean when a man takes a selfie in an elevator? And we're, for the first time in my life, I, I, writing something where I've, our relationship with the truth criterion is very loose. So there's all these quasi-psychological theories and stuff mixed with hardcore science. So you don't know what's real and what's not. And it's so much fun to write. Well, please let us know when this is out this, and we'll make sure we share it as well. Now, where can we find you, connect with you, buy you virtual drinks, whatever that mm, may be? Buy drinks, yes. Yeah, uh, samuelwest.org is sort of a business ca card uh, site. And the uh, museumoffailure.com, also most of the emails there go directly to me. And if you want to buy me a beer, you better have some money because beer is expensive in Stockholm. But welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Savio. It's been obviously an absolute 
pleasure to spend some time with you, particularly when we realise just how bloody busy you are. <laughs> so thank you. This has been a great, um, great, great uh, chat. It's it's you got this is this is, was a fun uh, interview slash chat slash good way to start the day. <laughs> I said to my wife last night, again, showing some of the cool stuff, and I thought, oh, I really want to be this guy's friend. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, you're a really cool guy. I thought you're right in my uh, my sort of you know Venn diagram of cool people. I like to I'd like to hang out with. So if you ever come to Australia, where in Australia like, are you? <laughs> please yeah, let me know. Please, uh, just north of cool. Sydney. Just north cool. of Sydney. So yeah, yeah ditto invitation well, next well, time I in would London. Love, I would please. love to hang out. I, yeah. I, in both. Both in uh, sunshine, beautifulness, and also misery there. <laughs> well, here, here's something: Museum of Failure in. Yeah, I would Australia. love to. I, we'll take I would love to off. bring it to Australia because I've there's a lot of interest. The both the Brits and the and the Aussies are they get the humor, they get it. Uh, I don't have to explain it. Yeah, um, yeah. it's sort of implicit. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely. I would love to bring it to, to Sydney. So anyone out there who has a big venue that doesn't need a lot of money for it, contact me. <laughs> okay. My office is quite good. Anyway, I'll see. I'll talk to the manager that we can do. So yeah. Thanks again, Samuel. All right. And, uh, yeah. Awesome. Lovely. We'll catch up Thanks. with you soon. As we always say, and I think I could literally hit repeat, what a great guest. Great guest. And uh, I think, yeah, we've definitely got another show opportunity with Samuel, I think, with some of the things he mentioned, the book, the Museum of Failure. I mean, I don't think there's one in London either. So, Well, yeah, well, so it, it's a touring there. show. Like, it's toured all over the world. Like, And yeah. do jump on, have a look at Museum of Failure and also Samuel West dot com like Definitely. the amount of stuff going on <laughs> and as we i always feel like a lesser person <laughs> after every interview. Like, oh my god what? What are they, how are they doing all this stuff this is it's not really a good podcast for us to do it's just it's lowering our self-esteem by the, by the week yeah <laughs> but as, so what were your what were your takeaways Simon, go on. You, you, you give us your takeaways there first. But Plenty to choose from. We need to have a new conversation about failure. And, you know, fail fast isn't the piece. And I love that, you know, fail mindfully. But that whole piece around just reevaluating what failure is because that's such negative connotations. But, you know, mindful failing is, you know, is learning. So there's something in that whole piece. And I think all teams should be having that having that conversation. What does, you know, you know let, let's think about failure in a different way. So a big, big conversation, and I think that's a good one to have. I love the, that he said, if leadership had have listened, you know, that was <laughs> a common theme yeah. of all of these. So what a great reminder. Just be curious. Just listen in. Don't jump to your first conclusion. Just let it brew for a little while, you know, listen. And I love this just mishmash of stuff he's doing. He's got his hands in loads of pies and, you know, some of them work, some of them don't. So it's a really nice reminder just to embrace life, try a bunch of different stuff. Some works out, some doesn't, but that's there's joy in that as well. Yeah. What about you? Unfortunately, I have to narrow it down to three, so I will because I've probably got about eight. <laughs> but let's take three. The advice around, obviously, uh, psychological safety, with it being such a hot topic at the moment, something I'm certainly aware of with some of the organizations and teams we're working with, but role modeling by leaders being ever so important there, that they have to sort of set the tone in terms of being vulnerable, making sure it's safe to speak up, to admit 
mistakes, etc. That's absolutely key, both for teams, but also the organisation more generally, particularly if you want to sort of tap in or lean into that playfulness piece that uh, uh, Samuel also talked about. I love the idea of, again, reframing things of having the board look at focusing on failure recovery rather than risk management. Risk management as a topic undoubtedly is going to be there in the boardroom, as it were. But to have failure recovery come onto the agenda, I think that's a that's a great way to look at it. And the last one's personal, which is travel somewhere that shakes things up for you. Yeah, I love it. It's a good love reminder it. to us all to to go travel with traveller's eyes and for a new experience rather than just to flop on a beach towel. Yeah, I, I nothing wrong with that, no. but I get it. I often talk. Shaking things up can be a good thing. Yeah, talk about we went to Cuba back when Fidel Castro was still alive. And you always, people say, it was a good time. And I go, it was just a really interesting time. <laughs> it wasn't sort of a holiday per se. It was just a, a journey through a, a um, political uh, and social time warp, if that makes sense. So, yeah, a yeah, little anecdote. Probably didn't need to share. There you go. As always, uh, if you're enjoying the show, tell others, please. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us. Most importantly, please leave a review because reviews are a great, great way for us to have that sort of message get out there to a wider audience uh, so they can come in and share some of this as well. Subscribe. Check out the website for previous episodes. That's uh, occupationalphilosophers.com. Get in touch if you want to have any suggestions around things we might explore. It'd be great to hear from you. In the meantime, Simon. As we always say, make stuff, have fun, play more, be very curious, and date life. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it, so. All right. <laughs>